Um, I don't know about you, if you walk into this crowded room of people and you ask them um, the question, what do you think about um, when you think about God, you might get all kinds of different reactions based on people's beliefs, their religious beliefs, non-religious beliefs, even their philosophy, their worldview or whatever. Um, Dependent on their view of even the scripture, you might even hear them talk about God in the terms of this all-powerful deity, this big guy upstairs who created and watches over us. Or some people might even talk about God as this energy or force um, that is actually present throughout the universe. Some might describe God even um, in a pantheistic way as creation itself, that God is creation. Well, that which identifies as the universe is actually a manifestation of God himself. And there's all sorts of different theories around who God is and what God is. And here's the question I want to hang out there today. Um, And I think it's one of the most important questions that you could ask. In fact, I don't say that, but A.W. Tozer, who's a pastor and writer, was a pastor and writer in America, says that this is the most important question that you could ask. And this is the question, what do you think about when you think about God? What do you think about when you think about God? It's actually the defining question. It's one of the defining questions. What do you think about when you think about God? And of course, Christians, the Christian tradition, Christian community here, we talk about, and there's a theological term that a lot of Christians have come to try to describe this understanding of this mystery of who God is, and that is the Trinity. You've heard of that, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But before we even get to that, I'm just going to ask that question. Who is God? I remember when I was a kid, um, used to be writing, you know, maybe you were in school, or you were doing some kind of exercise in Sunday school. I did grow up in a Christian, with a Christian background, so I went to Sunday school. And school, I mean, you were writing, and I remember a teachers and Sunday, Sunday school teachers and people always getting me to, when I wrote, a, when I wrote the word God with a small g, I was always corrected. It's like, you should write it with a capital G. And there was something intrinsically meaningful in capitalizing the letter G when it comes to talking about God. Um, I wonder what, what you think. Is, it, is God this <clears throat> generic placeholder uh, for a deity? Um, or when you think about God, when you think about what you think about when you think about God, do you think about the Judeo-Christian story and how God has revealed himself within that story? Because there's all sorts of opinions about, <clears throat> about God, but there isn't, and there's a mystery, but then there is this truth, this reality to the tradition that we're in that God has revealed himself within this story, a story that has shaped our whole world. Um, I'm going to talk a little, do a little bit of quick background stuff if I can, go really, really quickly about God in general before we go in to talk about uh, Jesus. Um, if you've ever been reading the Bible, especially the Old Testament, um, <clears throat> you might have seen God named by a number of different names. Okay, we've talked about the Trinity so far, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but then you hear about Yahweh, Elohim, El Roah. Adonai, Savior, Redeemer, the angel of the Lord. There are in fact dozens and dozens of ways in which the people within that story, the Judeo story, the Jewish story, referred to God. Um, 
And many of those were revealed to us in the Torah and Genesis. And this multiplicity of names can actually be, I suppose it can be a lot confusing when we open our scriptures and we see all these different names for God. It's important for us as Christians, as those continuing that story, that Jewish story now into the, the Christian story that we actually get a sense and understanding of what some of those ancient names mean. So I'm quickly going to do that before we go deeper. So understand, this is the important thing about how the scriptures themselves, the Judeo-Christian story reveals God. Um, the big idea here is we've got to understand that in the scriptures, God is actually understood through the cultural context of the people that the scriptures are written to. The places and the times of the Bible are really, really important about what's going on in a particular story within the Bible. In other words, God reveals himself to people through language, concepts, cultural context, and the rest. To understand the significance of the Bible in our time, then we have to understand those ancient meanings of that text and what they meant within their own time and their own place and their own context. Um, The various names of God in the book of Genesis are connected to the ways in which ancient Near Eastern people thought about the gods. So as we will see, the names given to God are like a response. The names given to God are a response to ideas that were held by other people around the people of God. The Canaanites, for example, an ancient people group, in an effort to redirect their attention away from the gods, small g, s, this name gods, to the the, the God has revealed um, as their God, the one true God. Let me just uh, hopefully flesh this out a little bit. Let's look at the word or the title for God, Elohim. Elohim, in the beginning God. In Genesis 1 when it says in the beginning God, our word English God actually means it's, it's, it's sitting in front of this word Elohim. Elohim, what does Elohim mean? Well, among ancient Israel's neighbors, people referred to the most powerful God as El. It's not actually a name. Elohim, it's not actually a name. In a sense, it's like a title. Like, like human is a title. Elohim is just a title. It's a title for a god, small g. Perhaps it can refer to many gods. The chief deity of all other gods was simply titled El, the god. The Hebrew word for God then often is Elohim in the scriptures, 2,000 times it appears. Um, and it's just a longer form of, of El. It's a placeholder title for, for God. We have this one word God that has this catch-all title for what we mean. Okay. So you, you can see that the shape of Elohim is this longer form. So I say in the beginning, Elohim, God. And then in Genesis 2, it progresses and now you get the Lord God and suddenly the scriptures are starting to speak to the nature of this God, the God who created the cosmos and the universe is actually the Lord God, the God of Israel, the, the, the God of the, of the, as the Israelites. Um, the Israelites used that short term El largely in their poetry in the Old Testament. Um, and uh, it's been translated into the English as God, so we won't notice the difference between how they're, they're used in different places unless we read it in Hebrew. So, for example, Elohai or El Shaddai, or there's other, other, lots of other terms which mean different things. We just use the term God as an attempt to understand the mysterious creator of the universe um, through these ancient people. Um, so when the Israelites used these various titles of their Canaanite neighbors, um, they did not believe the gods of their neighbors was the one true God. They actually believed that all these words pointed indeed to 
the one true God is revealed through Abraham and Moses. So Elohim, a placeholder title for God used in lots of different ways throughout scripture. But let's go further. What about Yahweh? Yahweh in English and in Hebrew, the word God um, is, is again, it's, it's a title um, for a deity that could, that could be also applied to, to lesser beings. But the ancient Israelites, Jesus, the early Christians believed that their God was the only true God, the only spiritual being um, uh, above all the other gods. So this idea that monotheism is a belief that there's only one God is actually not accurately true you know the people of Israel and Jesus and the early Christians believed that the one true God was the God of gods he was the one true God among lots of small g gods Um, real nonetheless so Elohim um, for example, then north of Israel lived the ancient Syrians, and they had a god called Baal. The Moabites worshipped Shemosh, um, yet the Israelites were unique in that they gave their allegiance to a deity that was not named or worshipped anywhere in the ancient world. And that name uh, turned out to be the name given to that god eventually was Yahweh, which you've heard about, Yahweh. Yahweh is the God of Israel, first revealed to Moses in Exodus 3, 12 to 15. Um, and it, it also relates to the God that revealed himself to Abraham in Genesis. So the God that Abraham and Moses worshipped was Yahweh, Yahweh. Um, and it's all a little bit making our brains spin at the moment. I know it's all a little bit crazy. Um, but uh, this was a fitting name, I suppose, for this creator being of all things, this, uh, this ultimate author of all reality, the one without beginning or end. And it, the actual word El means he will be, he will be. So we have Elohim, we have Jehovah, and, or we have, we have Yahweh. What about Jehovah? Much later in Israel's history, around the third or second century before Christ then, we have uh, people stopped pronouncing Yahweh, um, uh, as a form of reverence, and they started to drop the vowels, and you can sometimes you see that written with the, with the Y, um, the W, and the H, um, and uh, they started to pronounce it um, with the Hebrew word Lord in front of that, which is pronounced Adonai, and effectively how that morphed in English was that it effectively became Yehovah, and Jehovah, and that's how we actually end up with the word Jehovah. It's like a hybrid of two different words of Adonai and Yahweh together, Jehovah, and that's why we have that word Jehovah. And Yahweh, as I say, it means he will be. So you have all these different names and titles of God that are trying to put a, put a name on this mysterious being, the creator of the cosmos, the creator of the universe. And I've done a, a not bad attempt, but not awesome attempt to try to give you a picture into that whole world. And you can go and study that more if, if you wish. But there's this mystery around um, who is this God um, as revealed um, in the scriptures. Um, so there's all these different titles. The writers then in the New Testament, if we fast forward to the New Testament, they also had some ideas about who God is. And I want to talk about those this morning, this mystery of God, because I believe as they have talked about who God is in the New Testament, that is everything for us as we continue this story of discovery, of union, of life with this mysterious being the creator God of the universe. Um, I want to contend along then with the writers of the New Testament that when we think about what we think about when we think about God, and we think this one thing, 
about this one thing. This is how the New Testament reveals God. And it's not actually a thing, and it's a very simple Sunday school answer. It's simply Jesus. We got there in the end. Whew. Okay, 23 minutes left. That's all right. Jesus is the picture of God. Brian Zand, I just want to read a quote from Brian Zand. Jesus is the perfect revelation of the divine. He says this, God is like Jesus. God has always been like Jesus. There has never been a time when God was not like Jesus. We haven't always known this, but now we do. God is like Jesus. The name for God is Jesus. I want to just help us see that this morning. Um, from two different Gospels, the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of John. These two different announcements um, of Jesus, of God showing up in the person of Jesus. Um, please turn and open your Bibles there to Matthew 1. That will be a great start. I don't think it's going to come up on the screen. So if you've got a Bible in front of you, open that up. There's four Gospels. We're looking at two of them very, very quickly. There's four Gospels, four different tellings of this God showing up in the world in the person of Jesus. And all four Gospels are written to different audiences and have different agendas, different theological agendas behind them, aiming at a different people group or a different um, uh, a different people group or a different agenda. So Matthew, Matthew is is trying to get at a certain point, and this is the point I want. This is point one of three points I want to make this morning. That Jesus, the person of Jesus, is what God looks like as King. Jesus is what God looks like as King, or another word for that is Messiah. So that is what Matthew is trying to do um, in Matthew one. Let me just set the scene just for a wee moment before we read a little bit. In the, in the beginning of the Bible, we see Adam and Eve living in the Garden of Eden. And though the Garden is perfect, evil exists. The evil in the Garden of Eden exists in the form of a snake that tricks Adam and Eve into disobeying God's commands. And it's a fatal mistake on the part of Adam and Eve, and one that would lead to the, down, the downward spiral of sin. And it's after the rebellion that we see God make one of these first promises. So in Genesis 1, after the fall, God makes this promise. Thus putting into action this grand plan that would eventually save all of mankind and all of the world. Here God promises someday that someone would show up and would, and using metaphorical language, bash the head of the snake that brought evil into the world. But here's the thing, before the snake was able, um, the, the snake, before the snake was crushed, the snake would strike the heel of this person. So there's this confusing picture of a snake being crushed, but before it's crushed, it strikes the heel of this person that would show up in this metaphorical language. It's beautiful, yet confusing, but it's a promise that, with, a, with a further explanation that comes when we start talking about Jesus. God promises Abraham that through his descendants, goodness and blessing will be brought back into the world. To one of these descendants was a man named Judah. God promises a great king will come from this line and this king will be the one who destroys evil and fulfills the promise God made to Abraham. So one by one, the kings of Israel fall well short of that calling, well short of destroying evil. And in fact, evil destroys them. So the Old Testament ends with still no such king that has come to crush the snake 
the promise has not yet been fulfilled. And that's where we find ourselves when we open up the gospel of Matthew and Matthew's writing to an audience. And this is what he says. You'll see it here. He, uh, at the beginning, he's writing and he says, uh, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. You see that in Genesis 1? And it's followed by this genealogy of 41 different names. So we don't really do genealogies in Western culture. Um, we have little interest in them, perhaps because they're a little bit tedious. But really the readers, the audience that are reading Matthew are getting really excited because he is describing this person of Jesus as the Messiah, the one that has been promised right from the beginning of time, the one that would come to to bring deliverance. Um, And through, as it says, the son of Abraham and the son of David, it's through these lineages of the kings of Israel that he is coming. So Jesus is described here as this picture of God as Messiah or this picture of God as king. What does that really mean? It means that King God has promised that he would defeat evil and he would bring goodness back to the world, the world that they've been looking for in this king for some time. So by coming through the lineage of David and Judah and combating evil throughout the world, Jesus was fulfilling this promise of becoming the Messiah that the Israelites were looking for. Yet most of the Jews didn't even realize this when Jesus was in their midst and they actually went on to to kill Jesus. as we know, on the cross. It fulfills, um, the Messiah, it fulfills the promise that God made all the way back in the Garden of Eden like we've talked about. Evil had struck the Messiah's heel on the cross. But the Messiah, Jesus, would actually overcome evil and crush evil's head by rising from the tomb. Jesus gained the ultimate power over death and evil and gave his followers power over death and evil as well, dealing Satan a fatal blow. So the revelation of God is this, that Jesus is God as king, the one who has come to fulfill all of these promises from Genesis right the way through the lineage of kings in Israel, right the way to the cross. And that Jesus' revolution was actually to go beyond the cross, beyond the Jewish tradition, beyond the Jewish religion, and that Jesus would be declared as king. That's what it means for Jesus to be the Messiah. The other way that we might say that as Christians today is that Jesus is Lord. So the challenge for us today, if we're asking this question, what do we think about when we think about God? We think about Jesus. And we think about Jesus in a particular way. We think about Jesus as Messiah, but as we're not Jews, we think about Jesus as King, because that's what it really means. King, the King that has come to overthrow evil in the world. Let's move on. Turn to John chapter 1 for the second announcement and revelation of God showing up in the world as Jesus. This is much more vivid language, I think. I'll set the context for John. In first century Palestine, people were waiting for this king to arrive, much like they were as written in the the first chapter of Matthew. And they're living under Roman occupation. And so in John, John's announcing um, the arrival of Jesus in very different language in one sense. Um, John chapter one, verse 19. uh, Now this was John's testimony when the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. He did not fail to confess, but freely confessed, I am not the Messiah. 
They asked him then, who are you? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you a prophet? He said, no. Finally, he said, who are you? Give, your, give an answer to, to take back to those who sent us. John, this is John the Baptist, replied in the words of Isaiah, I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. Now the Pharisees who had been sent questioned him. Why then do you baptize if you're not the Messiah, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? I baptize with water, John replied, but among you stands one who does not. He is the one who comes after me, the straps of sandals. I am not worthy, I am, un- I am not worthy to untie. So here we see Jewish leaders in John 1 questioning John the Baptist. They're awaiting this Messiah to show up. And John the Baptist is asked, is he the Messiah? Is he the one? And John says that he's not, but there is one that is coming and there's this shift and there's this movement. And I want to I move this on a little bit and I want to just, go, in terms of John 1, go back to the very start, verse 1. You've got that in front of you. And I'm going to read this in the voice translation. This amazing scripture, this announcement of God showing up in the world. Before time itself was measured, the voice was speaking. The voice was and is God. This celestial word remained ever present with the creator. His speech shaped the entire cosmos. Immersed in the practice of creating, all things that exist were birthed in him. His breath filled all things with a living, breathing light. A light that thrives in the depths of darkness blazes through murky bottoms. It cannot and will not be quenched. He entered our world, a world he made, yet the world did not recognize him. The voice took on flesh and became human and chose to live alongside us. We have seen him enveloped in undeniable splendor, the one true son of the father, evidenced in the perfect balance of grace and truth. So Jesus is what God looks like when God is king. Here's point two, that Jesus is what God has to say. Jesus is the voice, the word of God. If you want to know what God looks like, you look at Jesus as king. If you want to know what God sounds like, You think of Jesus as what God has to say to this world. We see here John saying that there's this new thing that has happened. God has showed up in the world. He's told us what he wants to say and he's given us an answer. He's interrupted the humdrum and the the trajectory of the world that's going towards a, a hopeless despair. He's interrupted that and he has spoken. The voice, the word, God's word to this world, God's voice to this world is the person of Jesus, the Christ, born 2,000 years ago. He is the word of God. And the gospel writer, John, intends to show us that in Jesus, God is speaking. God has shown up as Messiah and God is speaking and he's speaking to all of us, revealing himself to us. God is what Jesus, Jesus is what God wants to say to the world. So not only has God spoken, but God continues to speak today, Redeemer, and is speaking to us in the person of his son, Jesus. The speech that shaped the cosmos. 
the, the, the speech that shaped the cosmos and caused light to break into the darkness thrives in the depths of darkness. That voice actually took on flesh and became human and arrived with us. The Christmas story, God with us, Emmanuel. And so to the first century Jews in Matthew and in, and in John, when they're reading these gospels written by these writers, they're waiting for the Messiah. And the Messiah comes, not in the way they expect, but comes like this divine interruption into the chaos. And so today, this divine interruption, Redeemer, is our hope as we continue that story. As we continue that story, that Jesus is much more than just the Jewish Messiah, but he is king of the world. And he is the voice of God to us. So in the midst of our boredom and our darkness and despair, there is this light this light that shines in the darkness. This, on the horizon of our hell, there is a light, and the light has a voice. The voice is Jesus, the Son of God. Today, this divine interruption is hope that in the deafening silence all around us, questions of meaning, purpose, grace, truth, or beauty, there is this voice, a beautiful voice, that has interrupted the silence with this perfect balance of grace and truth, and it is Christ This divine interruption is hope. Hope for those who are asking, give us an answer, show us what God looks like, show us what God sounds like. Just like the Jewish leaders back in their time were looking for that answer, John the Baptist, are you the one? Just like they were looking for an answer, so we can look for answers and Jesus is the answer. He's the answer to this world's questions. He's the answer to this world's injustice. He's the answer to this world's disorder and chaos, sin and despair. God's answer, the divine interruption is Christ and all that, God, all that God through Christ taught us about his kingdom, the kingdom of God is emerging in this world when we tether ourselves to Christ. So have we heard the voice? Have we heard the voice? Have we woken up to this reality of what God has done and is doing and will continue to do in Christ? If God is speaking, it's got to be a good answer, right? If we haven't experienced God's answer as better, or maybe we haven't noticed, then maybe we haven't fully grasped Christ or understood the reality of Christ. So what does God sound like? God sounds like Jesus. What does that really mean in concrete terms? I want us to to look a little bit further. I'm going to read a scripture from Luke now. In one of his first public acts, turn to Luke 4, 14. Jesus describes what this voice sounds like. In concrete terms, he speaks of a kingdom. And he speaks of a kingdom echoing the words of the prophet Isaiah. And he says this, Jesus is in the, in the synagogue, he opens the scroll of the prophet Isaiah and Jesus himself reads the, the scroll and says this, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant. The eyes of the synagogue were fastened on him. Today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. What's God saying? What does God sound like? This is what God sounds like. Good news to the poor. Freedom for the prisoner. 
recovery of sight for the blind, setting the oppressed free and proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor. So the Jewish people were waiting for this Messiah to deliver them from the Roman Empire and to establish the nation of Israel again, ruling on earth. But this, this voice, this interruption, is just it's so much bigger than they could ever fathom because it wasn't just about their nation of Israel or their people group. This is about God putting this world back together. Jesus is God's word to us. He is what God wants to say to this whole world. Jesus is the perfect revelation of God. He's what God wants to say in the humdrum of worldly power and the ways of injustice. He is the interruption that comes to bring in this new kingdom, to save people from their sins, to liberate the captives. This is what this voice sounds like. This is what God sounds like, liberating the captives, breaking the cords of oppression, turning beauty from ashes, adorning the shamed with grace and freedom and forgiveness. This is what God sounds like. This is the word of God as wrapped up in the person of Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, the voice God in human flesh. The infinite creator and sustainer of the universe, limiting himself to the confines of history in a time and in a place and revealing himself in concrete terms, interrupting, invading our world with a new way, incarnate, taking on flesh, shocking, raw, unbelievable. This is what we should think about when we think about God in the person of Jesus. We should point to Jesus every time. God knew there was no, way to, no better way to bring about a new world and show human beings a better way than by fully entering our world physically and emotionally and being with us. In a sense, God took on flesh. He took on skin for us because we needed that to see and to hear what God looks like and what God sounds like in our midst. There's a story I want to tell. Actually, it's Roland Rollheiser. He powerfully illustrates this. I've told it a few times before, but I think it's a powerful story. He tells this story about a four-year-old who wakes up one night frightened, convinced that in the darkness around her there were all kinds of spooks and monsters, and alone she ran to her parents' bedroom. Her mother calmed her down and taking her by the hand led her back to her own room where she put on a light and reassured the child with these words, you needn't be afraid, you're not alone here, God is in the room with you. And the child replied, I know that God is here, but I needed someone in this room who has some skin on. God has put some skin on when he has come to reveal himself as king through Jesus, as his voice through Jesus, tactile, real, person with skin on, the Christ, this interruption, the voice in the silence and in our darkness booms out loud in Christ. So I don't know about you or what the future holds for you or for me, but I know this, that faith, hope, love, courage, compassion, beauty, forgiveness, healing, all of it, all of it for us individually and all of it for us as a community and redeemer is wrapped up in this revelation of God as Jesus. I feel like I need to read that Brian Zand quote again, if I can find it. God is like Jesus. God has always been like Jesus. There has never been a time when God was not like Jesus. 
We haven't always known this, but now we do. God is like Jesus. He's the voice that interrupts that silence. And he announces this better world through his kingship, through his reign as Messiah. Brian Zand also says this, Jesus colluded with the Father to overthrow Satan and bring the world another kingdom, a kingdom of love, peace, and forgiveness. This was why Pontius Pilate condemned Christ to the death. It's also why I worship Christ and boldly confess that Jesus is Lord, Jesus is King, Jesus is Messiah. This morning, Redeemer, God has spoken. God's voice is spoken in Jesus, his son, as king of this world, and he invites us into communion with him, into a relationship with him. He has spoken into your story already by revealing Jesus to you. God's word to you today is Christ himself. And this is our last point as we move toward the table. That Jesus is an invitation into this divine love. We've talked about Jesus as king, as Messiah. We've talked about Jesus as the word of God for this whole world in concrete terms, the voice. But we know Jesus most familiarly, I suppose, in the Christian tradition as the son, the father, the son, and the Holy Spirit. Next Sunday is Pentecost Sunday. Stephanie's gonna come and teach us on God as spirit. And the following Sunday is Father's Day, and I'm gonna come and teach as God as father. But in this last point, I want to land this idea that you all know so well, that Jesus is revealed as in this mysterious love of the Trinity as the Son of God, as the Son of God. In Matthew 3, we have the baptism of Jesus, and these words are spoken over Jesus. A voice from heaven says, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. That was the voice spoken over Jesus. And we know this now in this somewhat mysterious union that theologians call the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This, this relationship of love that's ongoing between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, such a mystery. But Jesus was so sure of his sonship. He was so sure of his Father in heaven, if you read the Gospels and how he relates to God as Father. He was so sure of his place in that mysterious union. And in a sense, the invitation then for us is to join into that mysterious union of love with the divine. For us to be tethered to Christ means that we get to experience union, communion with this thing that we have put the word God over, this mysterious creator, this God that we worship through Jesus. We see at the end of his ministry, Jesus in Matthew 28 say, confirm this idea by saying, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I commanded to you. So in some mystery, Redeemer, we've been invited into this loving, mysterious union between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We've been baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So here I want to leave that with you today. What do you think about when you think about God? Or what does God look like? The answer is Jesus. What does God sound like? The answer is Jesus. Here's the kicker. Jesus is perfect theology. Jesus is perfect theology. The Bible that we live our, our faith 
through, informed by, points to Jesus because he in the person is perfect theology. Jesus is the image of God. He is perfect theology. He answers those questions we have about God that in the past humans have all often got wrong. And we see God as loving union of himself, as I've said. And we're truly invited to know him, to know this God and to know him as love. So when people ask, does God send the storm? Well, we look to Jesus and we see Jesus calming the storm. Does God cause the famines? We look to Jesus and we see him feeding the hungry. Does God inflict the sickness? And we look to Jesus and we see him healing the sick. Does God shun sinners? And we look to Jesus and we see him welcoming them. Does God condemn the guilty? We look to Jesus and we see him uh, saving them. Does God blame the afflicted? And we look to Jesus and we see him showing them mercy. Does God resent human pleasure? And we look to Jesus and we see him turning water into wine. Does God take our side in hostilities? No, he humanizes the other side. Does God kill his enemies? No, he forgives them. Does God return with vengeance on his mind? No, he comes with words of peace. So what do you think about when you think about God? I want to contend, Redeemer, that we see Jesus. God is like Jesus. God has always been like Jesus. There's never been a time when God has never looked like Jesus. We haven't always known this, but now we do. God is like Jesus. I'd love you to stand. I'd love to invite the band. And I'd love us to come today as we, as we mark ascension Ascension Sunday which which marks Jesus as King as Lord I want us to come to the table that this King Jesus has invited us into this word that God has spoken this loving union this mystery that God invites us into is found most tangibly and concretely here in bread and in wine and so as Matt and the band lead us I want to invite you all to come and to break the bread and to take of the wine and to experience a communion with the divine today in and through the person of Jesus. This is what happens at the table. Jesus invites us into a communion where we become like him, sons and daughters of God. He invites us into his kingdom where we can call him king or messiah or lord. He invites us into an encounter of the divine love an encounter of the creator God of Abraham and Moses and David, the God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This mystery that we get to encounter when we declare Jesus as Lord and King at the table, we get swooped up in that love, in that love. This ancient prayer of the church is this, come creator spirit, come Holy Spirit, creator Come from thy bright heavenly throne. Come take possession of our souls and make them all our own. So I want to contend today, Redeemer, that we pray. Come, Lord Jesus, come. We're ready to surrender our lives to you. Return our lives to the Lord. To go back to the beginning with God. We place our lives fully in Jesus' hands. The hands of the one 
who is the image of the invisible God, the one in whom all things were created in heaven and earth, invisible and visible, the one through whom and for whom all things were created, before all things, the one in whom all things hold together. Let our prayer today be that we would encounter Jesus at the table and this divine love. Let us pray, come, Lord Jesus, come, guys.